everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vayikra is titled Kedushas in the Details and explores the way these laws try and elevate each of our most basic human functions, food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and our use of time. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program, Jack's Queens and Kings, which will run from June 25th until July 12th. We'll be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish text and thought. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Emor is the first singleton Parsha we've had in a while. While the Parsha is centrally occupied with what is often called Parshiat Moadot, a description of the holiday cycle from Pesach to Sukkot, it opens and ends with other topics. The beginning of the Parsha discusses special prohibitions for high priests and lay priests. This means that they are not allowed to become impure for certain deaths, have extra rules about hair shaving, about whom they are allowed to marry, and the demand that they not have physical deformities. While some of these stipulations are well known because they sometimes cause strife for priests today, stripped of any actual temple duties but still bound by these laws, the idea behind them is quite clear. Just as the people of Israel have been chosen to live by a higher standard of purity as expressed by many of our laws, the priests have to do so even more. The Parsha ends with a somewhat enigmatic narrative of the blasphemer, someone who in the heat of the moment curses in the name of God. This narrative reflects the high spiritual standard of speech expected of the people. It doesn't matter who we speak with, but our speech must be pure. This law is taught to the people after the Israelite is sentenced to death by stoning, and it illustrates that while there are many commanded laws in the Torah, they are often and sometimes best learned out from real-life circumstances. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a new guest, Dr. Tammy Jacobowitz, who is the chair of the Tanakh department at the SAR High School in Riverdale, New York, and is the founding director of Makom Basiach at SAR, an immersive adult education program for parents, and is also an adjunct faculty member of Yeshivat Chovei Torah, where she teaches the pedagogy of Tanakh. Tammy is currently working on a Parsha book geared toward parents reading to young children. Tammy, it's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's so great to be here. Somewhat different from how I usually open up these podcasts, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the book that you're writing, uh, this Parsha book that's sort of geared for for parents reading to children. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I never studied Vayikra as a kid. wasn't in my curriculum in high school or in seminary, and like most of us. And I really came to Vayikra through the Midrash, through Vayikra Rabbah. I studied at Penn. I did my doctorate under David Stern. And he was in love with Vayikra Rabbah, and in turn, I fell in love with Vayikra Rabbah. And I actually wrote about Tezria and Mitzorah in my dissertation. And then it sat on the shelf for a long time, and I became a mom of four, and I've been a high school teacher now for a long time. And I've been looking for a way to bring the wisdom of the Midrash into family homes. And I, I wanted to start with Vayikra because it's so difficult, and it, people avoid it, you know, Lower schools avoid it, families avoid it, and it's filled, this time is filled with so many other yamim to celebrate and explore that we can sort of do away without exploring Vayikra. And I wanted to find a way for parents to draw Vayikra 
closer to their families to find ways to talk about hard topics. And I think Vayikra is an incredible platform to really go deep on how we want to live our lives. So the book is meant to be enjoyed by, I imagine, a parent curled up on the couch with a young child who enjoys learning with a parent. It's a springboard. Midrash is used as an opener, not as a closer. And each parasha, I offer three different ways to find meaning in Vayikra. I use a couple of different strategies. I'll just tell you about one of them. Uh, one of the strategies I learned through Midrash is to uncover the hidden narrative that's lurking everywhere in Vayikra. Um, and so sometimes I draw directly from the narrative that the Midrash identifies. Sometimes um, I find my own, but it's a way of bringing story into Vayikra. It's one of the barriers and it's one of the ways in. Okay, I'm looking forward to that book and I'm hoping that my children will understand English well enough by then <laughs> to uh, be able to enjoy it. If not, I'll read it to my, my husband. <laughs> but I really love that idea. It's funny because last year before we started our first uh, our first round of podcasts on Vayikra, I was really, really nervous that it was going to be boring. Uh, I thought it was going to be boring for me. I thought it was going to be boring episodes. And it was so wonderful because I finished those podcasts, which were different. They were themed differently than this year. And I just was reminded at how about how rich the book of Vayikra is. And it's, there are sacrifices, but it's, it's not even a majority of the book of Vayikra. Uh, it's obviously a very important facet of it, but there's so many little narratives and all these different halachot and, uh, and, and just, it's such a, it's such a rich book. I, I've come out now, you know, coming to a close of my second round doing it, really, really moved by, by how much there is. And, and yeah, when we grow up and it's not part of the traditional curriculum, so we forget that. It's funny because kids here in Israel, it's it's taught in every elementary school and they don't really think about it as any different than any other book. It's, mm. it's very interesting how that, that perception is a bit different, but I'm so happy that you're making it more accessible mm. to, uh, to a broader audience. Yeah, I think. And uh, it sounds super. Yeah, I, that's a, very interesting about Israeli kids. I mean, there's, you know, in, in the Midrash, it talks about you know, Vayikra having been early in the curriculum, that's, you know, the first thing that, that kids should learn because they're Tahor and, and the matter is Tahor. I've never understood that, um, except that if there's a kind of um, ease, ease of reading when you're not really thinking deeply, you can do Vayikra. And then later, when you're thinking more deeply, it's harder. Um, as when adults come to Vayikra, when they, if they expect that the Torah should easily yield ideas that will make sense to them and will be applicable and relatable, then they're really stuck. But if you if you use Vayikra as a lens, which I try to do for really everything in the Torah is strange. Everything requires, <laughs> you know, hard, hard. I find a lot of the narratives a lot harder. Yeah. yeah and, and, and to find deep meaning, you have to do work. So Vayikra makes it easier for me to read other things. I don't expect that the meaning will be easily translatable or directly to me. The Torah is written for me, but it's not written in language that is mine right now. I have to claim it. So you're saying Vayikra sort of sets the bar really high. And then after that, you sort of assume <laughs> that everything, everything requires a certain amount of work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I love that. So maybe with that, we'll, we'll jump into our topic for today, which is, as I mentioned, is Parshiata Moadot, is this, is this section, uh, one of the, a number of sections we have in the Torah, where we have really the description of all the, what we call the biblical Chagim, but the whole cycle from Pesach uh, through Sukkot, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So why don't we, why don't we jump 
right into that. What, what's the angle that we want to talk about today? Yeah, I guess uh, when I was thinking about this, this parak and parak Chav Gimel, I started with a very obvious question that all the Parshanim, all the medieval commentators are bothered by. And I tried to use that as an opportunity to really, you know, draw deeper. And, and the question is, you know, why is it that the Psukim begin with these are my my fixed times, my established times that you will call the Mikra'e Kodesh. And then before going to that cycle that you just mentioned, beginning with Pesach, the Psukim, as it were, interrupted by a Pasuk about Shabbat. And everybody wants to know, what is Shabbat doing there? We don't think of Shabbat as a Moed. It's not a Moed. It's called a Mikra Kodesh, um, a sacred assembly, but what, what is it doing in this, in this list? And I, and I wanted to think with you about, you know, the ways in which Shabbat both belongs as part of the group of the Moadim and, and ways in which Shabbat really doesn't belong in the group of Moadim. I think that, you know, that language is, is so important because if we could just state the obvious that, you know, God gives us Shabbat. That, that was what God gave us in the beginning of the Torah. A mikra kodesh, which there are different ways to understand that phrase, literally means to call something kodesh. That's a classic definition of the chagim, that we declare the month, that we decide when those chagim actually take place. And that's not what we do with Shabbat. And so the terminology is is just off, so to speak. And that, as you said, that's the question that that everybody tries tries to deal with. So like let's let's think about that. You know, there's obviously such big differences between Shabbat and and Yom Tov, and what is it doing here? Yeah, you know, when I was thinking about this for the book, and I was thinking about it from kids' perspective, you know, on the one hand, Shabbat and Yom Tov are much the same. You know, and I'm speaking from a diasporic perspective. Pesach leading right into Shabbat was not that long ago three days, a kind of immersive experience. And by the time you got to Shabbat, I mean, it just seamlessly came from Yom Tov. And from a little kid's perspective, I don't know, it's kind of the same. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes in, a lot of bustle and hustle that leads up to either of those days. And they can't do the same things and they should do the same things. And it's kind of the same. On the other hand, you know, like you mentioned, there is this idea already of Shabbat being God's and Yom Tov somehow human agency being much more important from a biblical or from the temple perspective, the whole business of human beings establishing the month and literally the, the, the Chag being contingent on human effort and Shabbat comes automatically without, so to speak, any human effort, notwithstanding all the effort we put in today. Um, but I, I've been playing around with this idea. I wonder what you think about it, that in a certain way, if we think of ourselves and God as guests and hosts, okay, just stay with this for a moment. There's a way yeah. in which Shabbat is, you know, Hashem is hosting every week, day in, day out, uh, week in, week out rather. And it's his time and we show up. Yes, we work realistically to get there, but when Shabbat starts, we're done. And we show up as a guest would and we don't determine the mood, we don't determine the message or the tone, but we enjoy the benefits of what the host has provided us. And that's our usual way into Kedushat Zaman. That's our usual way where we experience this set off time that's different than the rest of our week. And we enjoy the bounty of Shabbat because Hashem rested and we rest alongside with him. But then Yom Tov comes along and Yom Tov really sprinkled throughout the year is our opportunity to play the role of, of hosts, as it were. 
and we host God in much the same way that he hosted us. But there is an opportunity for us to set the tone. We're busier on Yom Tov, and I'm thinking about the um, melachot, the three melachot that we're allowed to do when we're cooking, and yeah. we can light, we can transfer fire, and we can carry, and that's around the business of, of eating and hosting. And so we're occupied in a different way on Yom Tov because we're ki'ilu, you know, the hosts of God. Um, and I, I, I think about this funny thing, my, my kids who are now mostly teenagers, when, when they were little, they would do this game, they called it table for two. And on Sundays, they would repurpose the leftovers that were from Shabbat and they would come up with all kinds of fancy items. They'd write up a menu. They would set up a restaurant table and they would invite my husband and I to come and eat at their restaurant. And it was like oh. they were hosting, but it was in our house. Just as we are hosting God, it's Moadei Hashem. It's, you know, it's Moadai. It, those are God's mm -hmm. times, but we get a little bit on the other side of the curtain to learn from what he's taught us to do on Shabbat. And then the tables get turned. First of all, in very impressive children. <laughs> I, <laughs> mine just whine when when we or when we're serving leftovers. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that out there. Um, it's a great idea. But first of all, I really love that idea. I think that because there are there are multiple models or other ideas in the Torah where God sort of gives us a practice and then and then we get to do it on our own. So I think that that, that idea of, you know, whether it's uh, even in Sefer Bamidbar where we're sort of toying with our independence, but we're not really independent yet. And then later we'll be independent. Like there's something about this process which feels very much connected to the idea that God first is sort of teaching us and looks at us as younger, uh, less less sophisticated. Uh, again, not saying Shabbat isn't sophisticated, but it what doesn't require the same sort of active activity on our part. And then and then Yom Tov is really that time that we sort of we sort of practice or we're able to be our own grown ups or our own hosts. I think that's a really a really uh, amazing idea. I think also that you know I'm wondering what essentially is also different between them. Meaning the fact that, is there one of them that's higher or better, right? If, if Shabbat was created by God, so to speak, and uh, I think, was, I don't remember which, but one of the commentators speaks about the idea that, you know, in both of them, we have a prohibition to do melecha, of course, aside from the ones you just mentioned, which do mark the day as so different. But he says that it's because of the essence of Shabbat, meaning we can't possibly do melacha on Shabbat because it has this spiritual quality to it. Whereas with Yom Tov, it's something that's sort of more acquired, meaning it's not, it's we, because we've declared it um, a mo'ed, we've declared it this, this convening with God like a Shabbat. So therefore, we're not allowed to do melacha. But it's not because of the essence of the day itself that we that we can't do that. And so there, there's, there's something different. I'm wondering if you look at it as less than or or just more humanly uh, activated. How, how do you think about yeah. that? Um, I haven't thought about the melacha aspect, although I do want to say something about that for a moment. I think that especially when it comes to Moadim, we typically, you know, we think of the colors and the and the smells and the the flavor and the texture of the the amin tovim, and they're also different one from the other. Unlike Shabbat, which is steady, um, and so much of the character of each of the amin tovim stems from the different positive mitzvot that we do that are unique mm -hmm. to that holiday. But when we think about holiness, we think about holiness in time. 
the holy character, if you will, comes so much more from the refraining, from the not doing, from abstaining from alecha, which I think we, we tend to overlook, especially when we spend time with small children or teenagers, as I do, that, that, that whine, as you said, for all the things they can't do, it feels almost like the drag, but it's what creates the space and the time in such a way that yeah. we can enter the zone. When we don't do melacha, right? Just the other day, one of my students said, but I don't get it. It's not work to play fill in the blank, right? That, well, yeah, it's not work. It's a certain kind of being and doing that we remove ourselves from. And we, we create a separation between our regular self and our other self. We dip into this other way of being. And so the malacha is really, the cessation of malacha is the amazing secret to how we're able to achieve the feelings that we do on Shabbat and Yom Tov. But your question about, you know, which is which is sort of higher or better or more elevated, um, I think that throwing Yom Kippur into the mix is really helpful because, you know, how the Gemara talks about Yom Tov should be chatzio lahashem vechatzio lachem, half and half. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, as a small person, I always thought of that almost in quadrants. You know, like, okay, you get this time and I'll get that time. And I go to shul and that's my God time. And I come home and it's my me time. And I actually don't think that way at all anymore. Um, I think what the, what the Gemara perhaps is challenging us or what the whole idea of being in Moed is challenging us is to think about how we can be together with God, how we can be in God's company and we can experience Oneg enjoyment and we can experience a sense of a full-bodied uh, presence together with God. And so the Moadim and Shabbat and again Yom Kippur give us different ways of experiencing that balance and that alignment. Yom Kippur, I know many people have trouble with Yom Kippur, but in a certain sense Yom Kippur is really the easy day. It's like we relinquish ourselves. There's no, there's no body self. There's no needs that we're meeting. And we're really spending the entire day in a kind of meditative state where we're aligning ourselves with, with the spiritual. And the Moadim are, are harder because there's, there is the time that's established in Pesach not that long ago. There's like the whole night is spoken for, but there's a lot of time in the middle of the Yom Tov that there isn't something specific that you do in order to experience the Moed as a time with God. And I think that's where the the challenge and the opportunity lies. You know, the word that's coming up for me in your description that we also mentioned before we started officially speaking is the concept of focus. Because if you take Yom Kippur as like the extreme Moed, right? It's the it's the Shabbat Shabbaton. It's like Shabbat on steroids, basically. So the it's a day. Now, again, for some people who have a hard time fasting, this doesn't work well for them. But essentially, it's a day where you're supposed to focus. And therefore, you take out the things that, you know, make it difficult to focus. For a regular for a regular Shabbat and or Moed, we eat, but we don't do Malacha, and that enables us to focus. And on Yom Tov, it's a slightly lower plane, simply because we're allowed to also prepare. It's funny, by the way, <laughs> I was never an adult in in the States, meaning a cooking, you know, wife or mother, any of those things. 
but I have actually never cooked on Yom Tov. Uh, in, I live in Israel, and it's it's one day, meaning at most two, and it's so foreign from my from my way of thinking. I, I've never cooked, so I've actually never lived out those two different realities. But uh, I think that this this focusing piece is really interesting because we have like the gradation of like Yom Kippur, Shabbat, and Yom Tov, at least in in theory, if you're going to engage in those malachot that are that are allowed to you. But I think that that that's really the state that we're trying to achieve here. Like I think that the kedusha of these days, like you need to be able to focus to meet Hashem in in those in those spaces, uh, and that I think I agree with you. While in general, in Judaism, I like to talk to students about like what do you actively do to be in in Oved Hashem, like to be a servant of God. I agree with you that we can't overlook the significance of the cessation of activity, especially in our lives today, where activity is I would use the word again, is even on steroids and more than what it used to be. And it's just it's so stark for how regarding how much this creates the character of the day. So that word just sort of keeps coming up for me and, and when and when you're describing that. Yeah. And and you know, being in the diaspora, we actually cook everything beforehand too. But but I want to say that one of the things that the two days allows for, and maybe we need it in the diaspora in a way that you don't in Eretz Israel, but there is a way in which spending more time in that zone, you enlarge your capacity for focus and you enlarge your mm-hmm. capacity for that way of being and for that presence. And and I guess I think about that as as you move through your life, Moadim, like everything, they're they're faster and easier for, for many people. Yom Kippur, how long did it seem when you were young? And now it's it's over soon after it starts, but but we are being invited in you know, the Moed, and let's bring it back to Vayikra, the, the Moadim are like the Oha Moed, they're the time equivalent of the of the space of the Oha Moed, and the Mikra Kodesh likens to the Vayikra El Moshe, that we're, we're really being invited into this opportunity to meet Hashem in this way. Um, I've also been playing around with this idea that, you know, since there's an invitation that we hopefully accept, it also means that it's an invitation that's being extended and we might not accept it. If we could anthropomorphize Hashem for one minute, there's a sense in which, you know, Elohim Moadai, but you might not show up. And mm-hmm. we're, um, we are the willing and loving receivers of the invitation, um, but it's a two-way street. It's a meeting place. It's a it's an opportunity that we're lucky that we get, um, but God, as it were, is also pleased that we show up. And it reminds me of the midrash in the beginning of Vayikra. There are many, many midrashim in the very beginning on the on Vayikra el Moshe, which seems like such a simple pasuk. And what's there to say about it? But the midrash goes nuts on, you know, what it means that God invited Moshe in, and it was a very particular kind of invitation, and it was an opportunity, and he was selected. And that's by extension what's happening later in the in the sefer to the rest of Am Yisrael, that the Moadim are a specific kind of invitation, and we are, again, being given the opportunity to sit with a certain kind of presence together with God. So it's interesting because the the idea of invitation, because of the halachic differences between Shabbat and Moed that you mentioned earlier, there are, there are so many who describe 
Shabbat as God inviting us in versus Moeds or the Chagim is when we invite God. But it's really comes through very clearly from, from the development of the Halakha. So it's interesting because I think you're saying something that's slightly different and a little bit more nuanced than that. But I, I, years and years ago, I remember a friend, uh, we had, were speaking after one of the Chagim. I think we, we at that point had some smaller children and we were sort of discussing, you know, how much we feel like this spiritual sort of essence of, of that Chag. And she said, you know, it, it doesn't always work, right? It's not always going to happen. But she said, I really always look at the Chagim as, as an opportunity, which you just used that word as well. I look at it as an opportunity. So if it didn't happen, I didn't get the bonus, but it's not like my life has lost out. There's something about Shabbat that's really like embedded in like the blueprint of of our of our entire week, and your relationship between Shabbat and 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 the rest of your week is something that is is just going to be central to your life as as an observant Jew. But she said, you know, the holidays. So I look at them as as an opportunity, and sometimes I'm able to grasp and you know really meet God or or get something from from the essence of that holiday. And sometimes I'm I'm not going to be able to. And if you think about it, even though we have Moadim sprinkled throughout the year, there's really two different zones of, of, of Moadim, of Chagim in the beginning, starting through Rosh Hashanah, through Shemini Yatzeret, Simchat Torah, and then the one that we're in the middle of right now. And we yeah. get a lot of training and practice. And, and going back to that phrase, you know, we enlarge and expand our capacity over the course of each season. And it's not just on us, you know, it's not like any of us are choosing these days and we're inviting God on a day that feels right for us. This is, we're yeah. part of a collective. And so I feel less pressure, you know, certainly the Seder, there's a lot of pressure because you're at home and it's just your family, but generally Chagim are a collective experience. And, and it's a similar notion, you know, I've been thinking about how different it was when there was both a place and there were Moadim. You know, now even in Israel, you know, we don't have the place in the way that we had. No. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. And the the central, the centralized experience is through holidays. You know, sometimes I imagine this vision of particularly on Seder night, but traveling around the world and, you know, I guess different time zones, but seeing lots of people doing the same thing. There is an, an asifa that's happening through shared alignment at the same time in similar ways of connecting with Hashem together. So it really is, you know, it's not all on you or your family or your shul or your neighborhood. It's it's everybody together. And um, I believe it's Rav Hirsch who says that, you know, the 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 Chagim were the the times originally when there was a special thing that happened between God and the Jewish people. And so when we come back around to those times, you know, there's a renewal opportunity to tap back in to what once happened at this time. And so again, the, you're, you're the host, but you know, you're not, you're not reinventing the wheel. You're right. going through a very long and storied and beautiful history of many people in the past and many people together trying to align in the, in the same kind of way. And there's comfort in that. You know, when we're, we're, we're thinking about the, the balance and figuring out how to align, as we said earlier, between yourself, the oneg, the shalachem, and bishvil Hashem, you know, the Nevi'im warn us that it's, I would say, maybe they're looking at extreme versions, but, you know, Yishayahu, God says, I don't want your moadim, moadechem. They've turned into days that are really for you. Or when later he warns, you know, don't make this a day where you're doing where asot chafatzecha, 
when you're, you know, engaged in your own affairs. And that looks perhaps extreme when you when you see it through the lens of the Nivi'im, but I actually think that that's an ever-present problem that we struggle with. It's hard to know when your own egg is for you to the exclusion of for God. And how do you figure out a way in which your, your, your personal and your family connecting, enjoying, when all of that is serving its own purpose or when it's together in some way with God? And, you know, thinking about this article I read recently in the New York Times, it was called, You Call This Flexible Work. And in the context of the article, which was looking at the ways in which, you know, we're sort of, we're drowning in our inability to control our time and, and understand divisions between time. And the article was describing the evolution of, of work time and how in the late 19th century, the labor unions who were agitating for an eight-hour workday, halavai, we should all be privileged to experience that again, their slogan was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And I, I can't stop thinking about that. Is that what chetziola Hashem, chetziola Chem means somehow? Like having time where you plug in eight hours for work and nothing else. Maybe I'm a slave to my work, but I'm free to be a slave. And then once that's over, I'm in my own zone. Do we think of Shabbat and Yom Tov that way? When I'm in shul, it's just for God. And when I'm out of shul, it's just for me. I don't think so. I don't think that's the opportunity. I think the opportunity is to find a way, and you have to use your imagination, your spiritual imagination, but to find a way in which your, your home life, your, your eating life, your enjoying life, all of that is wrapped up with your with your spiritual growth. And it's interesting. I, I thought a lot about this question. and I'm going to share it personally, even though I know that it's not so relatable, because, because I work in Torah throughout the week, I actually, my Shabbat in the past few years has turned for me into a need for a break. And, you know, for years was very clear to me and also it's a lecha question, you know, not to read secular novels on Shabbat or, and then I got to this place in my life where I don't let myself read during the week because I'm, I'm doing too many other things and I need to be for myself boundaried with my own time and preparation. And so the times that I'm able to do that, I, I actually said to my students recently that I really only read fiction on the Chagim. <laughs> and so this question for me is actually very, it's become very pertinent of what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And for me, there, there's tremendous oneg in fiction. Right. I mean, I love fiction, yeah. uh, which is why I have to live it myself. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's, it's an interesting question. And obviously everybody deals with it differently. I have, you know, friends who do shift work, you know, and they're nurses. And so their sense of time and boundaries is, is so, so different. And also their, their differentiation between Shabbat and Chol is obviously something that's been, been shifted also over time. Yeah. So, those are really important questions. Yeah. I don't have any yeah, answers. Yeah, no, but. I love that. I mean, I've been thinking about this too, and I don't mean to be suggesting only one way of, of imagining this, but that's what's so helpful. I mean, halacha gives us a certain degree of instruction and boundaries, and many things are off limits on Shabbat, and that really helps us to organize our time and, and set up the experience in the best possible way. But then there's so much room for individual experience to figure that out. Yeah. And it, that makes so much sense. I remember feeling that way when I was a full-time learner, that Shabbat was really not about Torah. And, and that made sense. And that was a division. Or also that it becomes, for many people, Shabbat becomes their family day. 
And because let's say they're working very full time, or it's just much more stress time with their with their children and their family. And so I also think about that, meaning that Shabbat becomes, well, it's supposed to be this Hasmanah Kedusha, meaning this is when I'm meeting God. So the question becomes, what does it mean to meet God? Meaning, are we able to bring God into those interactions with our family, with our children? Maybe, maybe it's being a better version of ourselves with those people. And maybe that's, maybe that's bringing God and that holiness (laughs) into, you get Yes, no. And I remember I wrote about this at some point in the book to kids. Like, how do you write, how do you talk to kids about what Kedusha is right? really in any way and translating it doesn't help. But I, one of the examples I gave was, you know that feeling when everybody's showered and looking beautiful and sitting around the Shabbat table and no one's on their phones and everybody is, mm, yeah. you know, singing together, which seems so like old fashioned, you know, that's Kedusha. Like that is, yeah. that's a real experience that especially I'm getting a little teary, but like we don't get to have that on an everyday basis. So I think for us today, that's a, that's a big piece of it. I don't think that's Chetziolachem. I think that's, that's an alignment moment. That mm-hmm. doesn't get doesn't get better than that. I really I think about that often. I'm I'm very grateful, honestly, for the religious lifestyle, which has many aspects to it. But I'm very grateful that we get to keep these quote unquote old fashioned, you know, things in our in our weekly routines. I know that many people around the world have tried to adopt them in their own way, in in what works in their own life for their their own practices. And uh, anyways, I'm, I'm grateful that it's that it's there in, in the system. Yeah, I wanted to say something. I don't know where this belongs exactly. But um, earlier when you had asked me, what's the difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov? You know, for people who are born into observance, there never was a Saturday. We don't know what that looks like, feels like. It's always been Shabbat. But Yom Tov can be any day. And suddenly a Tuesday mm-hmm. is Pesach. And especially in the diaspora, you lose all sense of what weekday it was supposed to be. But that experience of Yom Tov is unique that you replace and you, you, you redesignate what, what once was. And Shabbat is its own thing, self-standing, permanent. I like that. It comes out very clearly because I, it's certainly over this past Pesach, my, my five-year-old kept asking me what day it was. <laughs> it really is, it really is very confusing. <laughs> And, and it just takes a lot. It takes a long time for them to figure out because there really is this sort of mush between between the days and between the also bichlal here in Israel because it was one day, so we had Shabbat, and then so we had Chag, and then one right. day that was not, and then there was Shabbat again, and and she just was like, just tell me what I need to wear. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm not understanding what's happening. I don't know. I think there's kedusha in that too. I mean, sometimes we've been exploring all throughout Vayikra. So much of kedusha comes through boundaries and demarcation and managing our need for and our resistance towards holiness so we have lots of rules and lots of choreography and ways Mm. to dip in but then come out Um, we don't want to we can't live in a time that's all shabbat you know that's that's messianic that's you know totally shabbat but we we wouldn't even be able to understand what that business was about if we didn't have regular days so there is a there's a headiness to that description you you just offered of your of your daughter of just being lost in Pesach um, and maybe that's a quality to Kedusha as well but then you need to come out to be able to you know see it clearly let's talk about Sirat Omer yes that's a great way to to close our conversation since we're we're in that we're in that time yeah I mean it's it's kind of amazing thinking about what Sirat Omer 
represented in the time of the Torah and what it represents today. I mean, there's such a big gap. Um, and especially today with the proliferation of Kabbalistic practices and mindfulness training and self-improvement, and clearly that's nowhere in the Psukim. Um, but on its own, it's a, it's a ritual about time. You know, it's, there's not a lot of content. There's not a whole lot to do. You're done with it very quickly. But it's a, a kind of awareness of time. It's a ritual to help you appreciate, this is at least how I experience it, an awareness of the passing of time, an opportunity to be in time, and to see yourself as more of an agent, perhaps, than you generally feel. As a Yosef Halakha, there are many interesting commentaries that parallel basically the seven clean days uh, that a woman waits, whether as a Zava or today as a Nida, and and this cycle, right? We have these seven seven cycles of seven days for the Sphere at Homer. And there, there are two practices that I agree with you make us highly aware of time passing, mm-hmm. and they're supposed to do that. And in the world we live in today, where, of course, we have lost <laughs> a lot of our grasp on time and, our, and those boundaries, it's... I would say it's probably like utterly refreshing mm-hmm. that we have this practice that like draws us mindfully into time passing in the case, honestly, of both of them, uh, in the case of both of them, we're counting up. And in the case of both of them, we're counting, we're counting upwards towards uh, a, a union and a reunion. And that's supposed to be exciting and, and something that is, we've done it in the past, but that it still has a freshness because we're waiting and because we've become aware of the passing of time. And I think that, 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 again, I'm calling it a ritual, obviously it's a but meaning that that ritual of, of spirit Omer is, I think, I think it's become really even more powerful yeah. today than it was even in previous mm-hmm. generations. I love that. It's so beautiful. Um, anything to elevate the counting of the clean days. Um, but I will say also, <laughs> you know, that um, I don't, personally do too much of the Kabbalistic work at this very moment in time, but maybe I will later. But one of the things I admire about it and I appreciate about it is that, you know, Shavuot is, as you said, we're anticipating, you know, the theophany, the revelation, the receiving of the Torah, which of course requires human agency, but it's primarily about our collective relationship with God. It's all the vertical axis. But what we're doing in Surat Omer every day is working on ourselves and working on our midot and working on our interrelational character. And I, what I love about that is it's recognizing that part of developing your religious self and getting ready to receive the Torah is about the way you experience yourself vis-a-vis other people. And it's not separate. It's not as if Developing your religious self means investing more in tefillah and Talmud Torah to the exclusion of spending a lot of time thinking about how you speak to other people, how you receive other people, how much time you're spending with other people suffering, what kind of a listener you are. All of that is going to shape you into a religious person who will be ready to receive the Torah. Tammy, this was beautiful and breathtaking, and I'm really looking forward to that book that you're writing because I hear your narrative voice, and it's something that I that I love. So uh, we'll we'll all keep our eyes out for that book. And thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Josefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Josefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One on One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. 
you one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.